Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 5. And as you're turning there, we can dismiss Children's Church out following my, my son. <laughs> out to go see and follow Sierra, Wilson's favorite person. <laughs> Turn with me, if you will, to Mark 5. We're going to be starting in verse 21. We're continuing our series looking at hope through Scripture, living in a, an age of cynicism and an age of hopelessness. We are meditating on the hope we find in Christ. So Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. I'll read for us, then we'll pray. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. But she had heard the reports about Jesus, and came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we long for you, and we need you so desperately to just reach out and touch you. You give us peace. You heal us. You save us, Lord. We need you. Give us ears to hear today and eyes to see these truths. In your name we pray. Amen. Middle school. Think for a moment of yourself back when you were in middle school. Just maybe that one second, that one, those couple words right there make you cringe a little bit inside, thinking back to that time. I read one author that said this, No one has ever said these words, Geez, I wish I still looked like I did back when I was 12. <laughs> no one has ever said that. In middle schoolers, we love you, there is hope, it gets better, it gets better. When I first started middle school, I had just moved so I grew up in elementary school. I lived in a rural town in, in Maine, you know, a town of about 1,000 people. And then to begin my middle school career, my family moved to what I considered the big city, a city of about 20,000 people in Connecticut. But to me, that was the big city. And so here I was. All my older brothers had just gone off to college, and I had moved to a new town, and I was the new kid to start my middle school career, going to a new town without knowing anyone. And when you are the new kid, what is the worst time of the day on your first day of school. Lunchtime. 
Because there you go in, and the gloves are off. There's no homeroom teacher to save you. You are just thrown into the jungle. And so you walk into a crowd of eyes, and you don't know where you're going to sit. I mean, what if you sit at the weird kid's table? You might forever be stuck at the weird kid's table. Maybe you are the weird kid. What if you sit down and you spill something on yourself to make a first impression? Oh, no. You'll never recover from that. We all know that feeling of being an outsider. Maybe you had an easier time in middle school than most, but I'm sure that you can relate to that feeling of being out of place, of being excluded, that feeling of why is everyone laughing and looking in my direction? Outsider, the weird kid, those people. You'll never believe what I heard about so-and-so. In Jesus' day, there was another word for those type of people, the unclean. In our text, we see a woman here who is estranged. She is an outsider. She is unclean. And yet, we're going to look at this story and we're going to see something so beautiful because we're going to look at Jesus' heart for the outsider. Jesus' heart for this woman. So as, if you're following along, these will be kind of where we are, three steps along the journey. First, a woman on the outside. Second, a Savior who sees. And then third, a Savior who restores. A woman on the outside, a Savior who sees, and a Savior who restores. So let's first look at the woman on the outside, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So our story here starts with the pleas of a very desperate man. And we can understand his desperation here. His little daughter is dying. He needs help. This is a big deal because this is a person of prominence. This is a leader of the synagogue. And yet here he is humbling himself publicly before Jesus on his knees crying, come heal my daughter. And so Jesus leaves to heal this little girl. But I want to ask you, is this the only person that Jesus set out to heal this day? Was there someone else he had in mind on his journey? Look at verse 24. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. You know, we don't know a ton of details about this woman, about her condition, but there are a couple things that we can take from what we are provided here at Mark. First, we see that she is a woman obviously living on the outside, living in the shadows, and she is plagued by a condition. For over 12 years, she has dealt with this condition. And it very very likely would have left her anemic. She would have dealt with Headaches, fatigue, dizziness, pain, constantly. And she desperately tried everything she could to be healed, we read. Every treatment available, no matter how crazy, no matter how risky, no matter how outlandish, she had tried every treatment available, all of the, docs, all of the doctors, all of the experts, and yet, nothing. She had paid all that she had. Imagine her slowly watching her account balance go down and down and down, as she's trying just for one last glimmer of hope, hope that she'll be healed, and yet all of it was for nothing. 
she had grown worse. But even worse than the physical condition is the social and religious implications of what this condition meant for her. Her condition left her unclean, which would mean that she would not be allowed to go into the outer courts of the temple with other women. She would not be allowed to worship corporately. And even further, no one would be allowed to touch her, to physically touch her, because if they touched her, then they would become unclean. And so with a condition like hers, if she's walking down the street, she's going to have to call out to those around her that she is unclean, unclean, to say those every time she comes into a crowd and comes around another person. Just imagine for a second how brutal of a life that would be for you. How embarrassing it would be to every single time you came across another person, you would have to say that you were unclean. Imagine the shame that she probably felt. Feeling exposed. She was plagued. She was desperate. She had, spread, she had spent everything she had. She had no community, no health care, no physical touch. She was alone. And then we see in verse 27 this new glimmer of hope. She had heard the reports. Imagine when she finally first began to hear these rumors of this man named Jesus. What were the things that were beginning to spread in the camp of the outsiders where she probably lived? What were the first things that she heard about Jesus? That this man had come and he was beginning to heal people. That he had touched a leper. That he had healed him. That he had healed this paralyzed man that had been lowered through the roof of a building? That he had healed this man that was oppressed by demons? Everywhere this man Jesus went, it seemed that he brought restoration and freedom. Living with the outsiders in the shadows, this woman had heard the hope of Jesus. Could this Jesus free her too? So what does she do? What is her desperate plan in this place? She simply just wants to go and to touch Jesus' cloak. That's all. Notice how she doesn't even feel that she can presume like Jairus, that powerful man who could go up and be at his knees and to talk to Jesus and plead with him. She can't even talk to Jesus. She just wants to simply touch his cloak. And yet this is a very risky plan if you think about it for a second, for she is unclean. So by going up and touching a rabbi, that's a very risky thing to do. You would make this rabbi unclean. You would never think to go and touch someone, especially like Jesus. But she was desperate, and she believed that it would heal her. And heal her it did. Just think, just in that moment, just that simple touch, she was healed. All of those appointments, all of those days of going and being hopeful that this cure would come and take place, and failure after failure after failure, and dashed hopes... And in this moment, she's healed and no longer has to yell out to everyone that she is unclean. In a moment, she was healed. Her desperate plan makes me think of another desperate plan that we hear of in Scripture from Jesus. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Remember how he went and he shamed his family by asking for his inheritance early and he went and he, he squandered it and threw it away, found himself friendless and broke living with the pigs, if you remember. And what, what is the desperate plan that comes into his head in that place? You know, maybe if I just go back to my family, if I just go to them, I'll offer to be a servant. You know, at least, at least then, of course, I'll have the shame upon me of being a servant in my own family's home, but I'll have food. I'll have clothes. I'll have a roof over my head. 
Another story of a person whose shame had isolated them and was living on the outside with a desperate glimmer of hope. And yet in that place, how does the father respond to the son? He doesn't shame him. He doesn't tell you, I told you so. He runs to the son. He runs to his son. He embraces him. He puts on the robe around him. He puts on the family crest, the ring on his finger, returns him to his place in the family. He gives him a hug. He loves his son. A father doesn't care that in that culture, for someone, an elderly man in a place of prominence like that, to run would be seemed crazy. The father doesn't care. He wants to run and embrace his son, to restore him to the place in the family, and to celebrate him no matter the cost. This is Jesus' heart for the outsider, amen? Hope for the hopeless. Hope for the outsiders. Hope for the unclean. You see, we all come to Jesus like that. We bring our uncleanness bringing our sin and shame, we simply reach out hoping to just touch him. And we are healed through his power. This is what scripture tells us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous one, Jesus, takes away our uncleanness. So wherever you are today, Wherever you are in this room, hear these words from Jesus calling out to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and will find rest for your souls. That is his offer to every single one of us in this room, no matter how unclean we feel. But look back at our text. Notice that the story doesn't end here. We see a woman on the outside, but notice our Savior who sees. Look at verse 29 with me. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, as I've been reading the Gospels devotionally recently, one of the things that has really helped me as I've been reading is to ask a lot of questions about why is Jesus doing certain things? Like, why does he ask this question? Why does he act in this way? And I feel like it really kind of brings a whole new perspective on Jesus in his heart, especially. You know, as I read on this text and I meditated, I kept thinking to myself, who did Jesus really set out to heal this day? Who was the person that Jesus really wanted to heal on this journey? And I think the answer is probably yes. <laughs> Jesus set out to heal Jairus' daughter, but he also set out to heal this woman. And he probably also set out to heal his disciples of some of their, per, their ideas, probably, to teach them a lot of new things about Jesus' heart for the other. There was a lot that Jesus was doing here. But his actions here in these couple verses are are very captivating. Because think about this moment. After this has just happened, what does Jesus do? He stops. Right there in that place, he stops. And he turns. He knows that he has healed this woman, but he stops. 
And think about that in this moment. This is very significant because Jesus is on the way to heal the daughter of a very prominent person. It is very imperative that he get there quickly before she dies, especially in the eyes of the father and probably in the eyes of the disciples that are there as well. I mean, think about what's going through their mind. They're like, hey, if we get this leader of the synagogue on our side, that's a very strategic win, Jesus. Our ministry's about to explode. We have a synagogue leader in our camp now. And so here Jesus is stopping. What are you doing, Jesus? There is no time to waste. Jesus, why are you stopping? Of course people touched you. There's a crowd around you. What are you doing, Jesus? Aren't you claustrophobic? You're in a crowd. Come on, Jesus. We don't have time for this. There are more important things. Let's go. Notice how he stops and he turns and he asks, who touches, who touched my garments? Who touched me? He calls out. And he looks around the crowd. Why does he do that? Why does God incarnate on the face of the earth in this moment? He could be doing so many things, right? So many significant things in this moment. He's stopping and he's turning and he's asking a question. Because where is the woman? Where has she gone? She's gone back to the shadows. Back away from the crowd, back into hiding. Jesus is not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. He is asking because he wants the woman to see that she is hiding. That she is hiding. Makes us think back to the Garden of Eden after the sin of Adam and Eve, does it not? What is the question that God asks them? Where are you? God knew where they were. Who touched me? And in verse 33, we see that she comes forward in fear and in awe. She's coming in to the presence of the glorious one who has just healed her by simply a touch. And she's probably terrified. I mean, mean, imagine the thoughts that are probably going through her head in this moment. Like, what is going to happen to me? I just touched a rabbi. Am I going to be shamed even further, even more removed from this community? And yet, he healed me by simply a touch. And here I am in front of him. She comes out of the shadows and reveals what has happened. And don't miss this. Jesus was simply not content to just heal this woman. Jesus wanted to see her, and he wanted to know her. He brought her into his presence, and he's turning around the crowd and saying, where is she? She is one of mine. Notice how he's inviting her out of the shadows. One of the things I love about our church, and I love about Pinewoods, is its heart, especially for hurricane relief. And so I've had a couple opportunities to go on trips like that. I've gotten to see Steve Milstead and Bruce Cullen in their element and all that it entails. If you've ever been on a trip, it's an experience. I've gotten to see Travis Laird and his sons and what they can do when a tree is leaning on a building and how they can magically remove it and set it down perfectly. I've gotten to go on these trips. But one of the things I love about these trips is that often when we're going, we don't really know what we're going into. Sometimes we might know of a couple projects, but often when we get there, we have this almost hunting to see where we can serve. This hunt for where we can be compassionate. We get there, and then all of a sudden we hear about a neighbor, and we want to go and to serve them, and maybe it's to put a tarp on their house, or to give them some gas or some water. But I love that because that is what we see in the compassion of Jesus in the Gospels especially. That compassion is always searching for opportunities to love. In the same way, the heart of this church, when it goes on a hurricane trip, is always hunting for opportunities to be a blessing. 
And we see that here in Jesus. He is seeking out the weak, the desperate, the needy, the poor, and the oppressed. And He is running after them, seeking to know them and to love them. Compassion hunts for opportunities to love. And yet, our culture is consumed with what? Productivity and efficiency. We always want to be efficient. We can't be so slow. We can't have these interruptions. And think of our culture looking at at Jesus and what he's doing here. What would be our first thoughts? Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you wasting time here? Can't you see that you have a more important person to heal? Too often we miss opportunities for compassion by viewing them as interruptions or inconveniences. Henry Nouwen once said, My whole life I have been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered that my interruptions were my work. Jesus stopped, turned, and searched for this woman. Who might we be missing? Who might we be missing? What is Jesus hoping to teach his disciples and us through his example here of searching out for opportunities to love? You see, Jesus sought after all of us. He brought us out of hiding in our shame, and now he sends us out to the outsider, to those who have experienced, to those who need the experience and the compassion of Jesus. Jesus is sending out us who we were redeemed to go out into these people that are in the shadows that need his compassion, to know his love. But look back with me at our text. I love this next verse. Because our Savior not only sees us, but he restores us. Look at Jesus' words. Look at his healing words. What is the first word that he tells this woman? This woman is coming to him in front of him, is worried about being shamed in front of everybody. She has just touched a rabbi. She was unclean. What is the first word that Jesus says to her? Daughter. But she was unclean. Jesus, don't you know who this is? Daughter. Author Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, says that shame is a storyteller. It wants us to live in isolation instead of relationship. You see, we say, I feel shame because I am shameful. And he says this of shame. The eventual, inevitable outcome of this isolation is hell. The antithetical state of the we-ness and the withness of life in the Trinitarian community. It is the counter-echo of God's mandate that it is not good to be alone. Shame's power lies in its subtlety and silence, embedded in mental functions of implicit, implicit memory that we carry individually and corporately, and it's quite content to remain in the shadows while we go on doing its dirty work. We remain in its self-perpetuating cycle of judgment and hiding, continuing to fulfill the prophecy of the curses that God has foreseen. Shame is constantly telling us a story that it is better for us to be isolated. It is better for us to be removed from community, to be alone. And notice what Jesus does here in one word. He completely destroys the story that shame has been telling this woman for so many years. Shame had told her, you are unlovable. You are worthless. No one will ever touch you again. You are dirty and you are unclean. And Jesus says to her, daughter. How amazing is that? Come out from the shadows. 
Come out from hiding. You are clean. You are my daughter. Be free. And notice his next words. Your faith has made you well. Wow. What faith do we know of this woman? Has she been a disciple for a really long time? Is she constantly going to Bible studies? No. She had simply just gone up and touched Jesus. All she brought to Jesus was her desperation. All she brought to the bread of life was her hunger. Faith is not a work. Faith is receiving a gift. It makes me think of a powerful story of one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, and he tells this story. Uh, you've probably, maybe some of you have probably heard this. He talks about wanting to go and meet the thief on the cross in heaven and to go up to him and be like, how in the world did you get here? There you were, swearing at Jesus, and you never went to a Bible study, you never went to a membership class, you weren't even baptized, and yet you're in heaven. And he tells the story of the thief on the cross arriving at the gates of heaven, and there's an angel to interview him and ask him, you know, you know why are you here? And so the angel asks him, what are you doing here? And the thief on the cross responds, I don't know. <laughs> and the angel says, what, what do you mean you don't know? And then the thief on the cross says, I, I don't know. And so the angel goes, all right, hold on a second. I need to get my supervisor. So the angel goes, gets his angel supervisor. The angel supervisor comes, comes back and says, all right, all right, I got to ask you a few questions. What is justification by faith? And the man says, I've never heard of that in my life. And the angel says, well, all right, all right, well, what do you believe about the doctrine of Scripture? And then the man's faith is just completely, completely blank. And eventually the angel asks him, on what basis are you here? And he responds, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross, amen? It is the only answer to that question. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Faith is receiving the gifts of the words of the man on the middle cross to all of us. Your faith has made you well. And notice Jesus' final words to this woman. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In Hebrew, go in shalom, Go in wholeness. Go in completeness. Go in everything being made as it should be. And, and be healed, or literally be saved from your disease. Because we know that Jesus has brought more than just physical healing to this woman. He has brought, of course, emotional healing and spiritual healing. She's being renewed to her community. But so much more than that. All that was dead in her life has now been made alive. This is our Savior. He brings shalom to everything that He touches. Peace to everything. He took on the unclean on our behalf. He became sin, taking on all of the sin and shame at the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf so that we might have peace with God. So that we might be healed of our disease of sin. And He brings us all out from the shadows and our shame so that we all could be called sons and daughters of God, to become children of the King. And one day we know that there will be no more disease. There will be no more unclean. Every tear will be wiped away, and sin and death will be no more. Because our Savior restores. 
He brings what was dead back to life. So what is keeping you from reaching out to him today? One commentator said, In a sea of a million hands, Christ will see the one raised in faith, though it be infantile and imperfect. Are you sensing within you the stirrings of faith? By God's grace, exercise it. It will not go unnoticed by the Master. Our Savior will notice. The man on the middle cross is calling to you. Will you answer him? Our Savior, who not only sees us, but he is going to restore all things. Do not let him pass without reaching out to touch him. Let us pray. Jesus, you are amazing. We see your heart for the outsider, for the unclean. Lord, give us that same heart to reach out to those around us. Thank you that you reached out and grabbed a hold of us even when we were running away from you. Thank you for your amazing grace. In your name we pray. Amen.